Hi, friends. It's Saturday, the 17th, and you've tuned into Occam's Razor with your host, Dan Butterfield. There's no pandering to any specific affinity group or groups on this program. By design, Occam's Razor allows the facts to dictate the narrative, not some political agenda. The natural consequence? The agenda-driven narratives of the so-called mainstream media would be called under question, not your intelligence. You ain't going to be told what to think. You're going to be trusted to think for yourself. What you will get on Occam's Razor, insights available nowhere else. If you'd like to reach out to me, I can be contacted via email at orbydb at gmail.com. That's O-R-B-Y-D-B at gmail.com. That's six simple letters. Couldn't be easier. Friends, there's no better time to expose the youth of our country to critical reasoning than in their high school or college age years. So I encourage you, have your young people come join the program. No spin, no agenda, just pure critical reasoning. A skill set your kids can draw upon for the rest of their lives. Check out my website, danbutterfield.com. Folks, only through information can you take back the power from the mainstream media. And make no mistake about it, if you don't challenge the power brokers, they're not going to change of their own volition. Again, that's danbutterfield.com, where we do the work of the Fourth Estate. So what's going on this past week? Well, we got the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, there's three main issues that have, have arisen uh, during the hearings. One is severability. The other is text versus intent and discrimination. And we'll discuss uh, what the Democratic senators are trying to get at with these different areas. President Trump and the coronavirus. A number of items to address regarding the president and COVID-19. Most important, Donald Trump has tested negative two times in a row. What are the implications? Death toll continues to rise. Of course it does. It's not going to go down. The issue is what can the president do to thwart Joe Biden using the death toll in his 2020 campaign? Eli Lilly has suspended vaccine testing. Is it a permanent or temporary condition? We don't know. But this is always the risk when you're trying to bring a new pharmaceutical to market, and especially when you're trying to accelerate a pharmaceutical to market. There are always setbacks. And unfortunately, there's a psyche part of this because we're counting on this vaccine. And when you have this kind of setback, you go like the public's confidence kind of really takes a, a hit. You got Black Lives Matter and the NBA. The NBA has announced they're no longer going to display slogans on the courts of games. We knew this was coming. We talked about this a long time ago. The whole racial inequality issue, the Black Lives Matter uh, issue, just didn't have legs. And the reason? Too many disparate parties trying to carve out a niche. Ultimately, ultimately the, the movement was always going to collapse in and on itself simply because there was not one voice. This was a collage of multiple voices that never bodes well for the success of any endeavor. We've got the packing of the Supreme Court. I don't know who came up with this argument for packing of the court. I really don't. Don't know where it originated. But I can tell you one thing. Joe Biden has played this about as badly as he possibly could. Joe is not facile. Joe has never been quick on his feet. Joe should never try to play political gamesmanship with an issue such as packing the court. But he has. And he says, I'm not going to fall into Trump's trap. Dude, you've already fallen into the trap by not answering the question. It's not something where you can play games with without having repercussions. But Joe doesn't understand that. Joe simply is not facile. He's not quick on his feet. You've got the, uh, the media that used to bash George uh, W. Bush for his malapropisms, for his you know, misspeaking of things. Joe Biden's ten times worse. And so you're, you're looking at, Joe, don't pr- try to play games with this. Answer the question. And the best way to answer it would have been, it's not an issue. That's what he should have made it, a non-issue, but he hasn't done that. So what are we going to talk about right now? We're going to go into uh, what's taking place with the confirmation hearings and this issue of packing the court. Uh, before we get started, though, I really let's just get rid of the Black Lives Matter stuff. Because I think that it is a cause 
that has no legs anymore. I think that it never had any legs. And as I said, described earlier, there are too many voices in this movement to make it a movement. So as I've opined on this program months ago, the BLM was destined to collapse. Now, my editor thinks the failure is due to people becoming more aware of the nature of Black Lives Matter, the movement, the Marxist uh, origins. While that's possible, I think it's more plausible, I best fit, a.k.a. Occam's uh, razor, that there are simply too many cooks in the kitchen. And when you have that many cooks in the kitchen, you don't get a cohesive dish. So you get a hodgepodge. And that is what's taken place with this Black Lives Matter, you know, racial inequality kind of uh, mantra, that there are too many people out there with too many competing agenda that you don't get a cohesive voice. And that was the thing that I focused on months ago, is that there was never a single idea, never a driving force behind this whole uproar. It was a lot of different elements. You know, some are, you know, attacking the police brutality. Some are talking about social injustice. You've got other elements in there, and they all come together under this tent. Well, it's not a tent. But it, it becomes, this, as I said, an ad hoc, hodgepodge kind of uh, movement event, and it won't have legs because you're going to have all these competing voices. And so with all these numerous voices all vying for the same space, that's a recipe for failure. There was, in effect, no leadership behind this. And without a cohesive or unifying voice, eventually these things kind of disintegrate. They, they just fall in on themselves. They implode because there's just too many people wanting too many different things. And that doesn't spell, that doesn't bode well for any kind of movement. And that's when you look at anything in your life. You look at these uh, organizations you might uh, become a, a part of. You want to have leadership. You want to have that cohesive voice. You want to have that cause, that, that course of action. And as I said, that, hasn't, that was never the case with this Black Lives Movement issue. And now you've got the NBA making their announcement that they're no, no longer going to have racial inequality slogans of any kind on their courts. Well, that kind of confirms what we've been talking about with the BL, BLM uh, movement. It's run its course. It's not an issue because there was never the gravitas, never the cohesive message. And that is always, as I said, always problematic. I mean, I think that was a problematic uh, with uh, Martin Luther King. Dr. King never stuck to his guns on one aspect of racial inequality. He started talking about the Vietnam War, and at that point, he lost a lot of the audience. You have to drive home your cause. It has to be singular in focus. And when you don't do that, it's not a cause. Well, we've got Amy Coney Barrett. Now, what can we take away from the hearings that have uh, taken place so far? First is tenor, the tenor of these, these hearings. There simply isn't the rancor we experienced with the Kavanaugh hearings, and there, I think there's a good reason for that. A lot of it has to do with uh, Miss Coney Barrett is a woman, and I can't overstate this. I think if uh, Coney Barrett was a man, the treatment by Democrats would be far different. You also have the fact that we're not in the Democratic primary season. You had Cory Booker and Kamala Harris attack Kavanaugh because they were vying for attention, Q factor, for their own primary. Well, that's no longer in play anymore because the primary is over. So most of the senators on the panel, they really don't have an axe to grind. They don't have 
a purpose other than their own personal Q factor, but not for the Democratic primary uh, election. So we get this difference in attitude, and Cory Booker is, is, you know, absolutely the example, the prime example of this. He's been fairly uh, contrite, not aggressive, not over the top, not, you know, trying to talk down to Miss Barrett. Uh, so he's changed his attitude 100%. There is one person on the panel, the committee, that has not really changed their, their position, and that's Amy Klobuchar. Uh, she's coming across as rather snide, catty, one might say bitchy. Uh, and remember the slogan that was coined during her uh, Democratic primary race uh, contention. Clementum. Sounds like a venereal disease. I don't think that she's stopped. I think she's an angry person still. I think she's angry that she didn't do better in the primary. Uh, and so she's taking it out on Miss Coney Barrett. And it's not going to serve her well. And again, it comes back to when you're looking at uh, this uh, candidate, uh, Coney Barrett, it's because she's a woman, you can't attack her in the manner you can attack uh, a white male. And quite frankly, the one unprotected uh, entity in society today is white male. You know, so Kavanaugh was, he was open season. Plus they had, you know, some, the uh, sexual harassment, rape, whatever allegations they had. And the, the quite Truthfully, that was all just a boondoggle. But you had the Democratic primary race. So that's what escalated Kavanaugh's hearing to a different level. So we're looking at Coney Barrett. I don't think there's any October surprise coming in with her nomination. I don't think there's any skeletons in the closet. Um, I think she's going to escape unscathed because Democrats know that if they push the issue and they are hostile toward Miss Barrett, as they were to Kavanaugh, then it will not play well in the general populace. We do. We as Americans don't particularly care for beating up of women. We just don't. That's not our style. We don't accept it. We don't look at women in politics in the same way we do men. Men in politics, fair game. Women, a little bit different. In the case of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I think that the Democrats have figured that out. So they're not going to add ammunition to the general election by going after her in a vicious manner. As I said, there's three topics that are, you know, of, of importance in this hearing that the Democrats are making hay with it, or they're trying to make hay with. One is severability. The other is text versus intent. And the final one is discrimination. And so why are these particular issues of importance to Democrats? Well, we're going to ex- go down each one of them separately. Severability. Now, this is all about the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, as many people coin it. Severability has to do with the weak link in the ACA. Can you take out a part of the statute and have the statute remain whole? That is the argument that the Democrats are trying to make, that, you know, where is uh, Coney Barrett on severability? And I think she's acquitted herself in her answers that severability... It's the law. This is a procedure. If a law cannot withstand having a portion of the law taken out of it and still stand, then the entire statute must be tossed out. And that is the whole weakness of the Obamacare. It was always that this thing was cobbled together in a manner in which you couldn't take out the pieces without the entire thing falling apart. You know, we've got, you know, Donald Trump got rid of the independent uh, mandate or an individual mandate. 
got rid of the Cadillac tax. That put severe holes in the ACA. Why? Because it can't finance itself. If the individual mandate is gone, that means you can't force everybody into the insurance market as President Obama had intended. You can't force all that money into the exchanges. It just So it doesn't support itself financially. And the same thing with the Cadillac tax. In order to pay for a lot of the infrastructure, the mechanisms of the Affordable Care Act, Care Act, you had to tax benefits. Well, Donald Trump has effectively gotten rid of that. And so you've got two main pillars of the Affordable Care Act that are gone. Therefore, it is not survivable financially. It just doesn't support itself. And that is the part of this severability. How much more of this uh, statute that you whittle away from will it be able to survive? And that has always been, as I said, the, the biggest issue with Obamacare is that you can't just fix it at the margins. I mean, you're looking at uh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. They never put a, uh, forth a serious issue of repeal and replace. They were talking about working at the margins, working at the very farthest margins, because that's all you could do. They were putting perfume on a pig. They could not fix Obamacare. And that is the biggest problem with Obamacare. You can't fix it because as you start to try to fix it, it makes everything else implode. And that is this issue of severability that's before the court now. And I think the Democrats are trying to get a, a, a gauge on where Ms. Coney Barrett falls in that. And she's flatly told them it's, it's a process. It's, it's a mechanism in, or, in which you look at law. If the law, the entire statute, cannot survive when you sever a portion of that uh, law out or that statute out, then the entire statute goes away. And I don't think Democrats really like that answer. But it is a technical answer. It is not a personal view answer. And therefore, I don't know where Democrats come down on this and say that she's not acceptable for the court because she's giving them the technical answer. It's not a personal view issue. And again, when I look at all this stuff, you look at the Affordable Care Act. It was a piece of crap. It was poorly crafted. If I'm Amy Coney Barrett, I'm sitting back going like, you know, if you don't want me to have to adjudicate on this law, create better legislation. This is on Congress. This is not on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, you don't want them to intervene. If you're crafting legislation, make sure you create robust legislation that does not require the intervention of the courts. But that's not what this legislation, that's not what Obamacare was about. Obamacare was a political mechanism, and it was not well-crafted. So ultimately, yeah, you're going to get challenges to it, and it's not going to survive. And when we look at the law itself, the ACA, if the liberal media had actually been honest brokers in this regard, and I talk about this in False Narratives, my ebook, one of my ebooks, in False Narratives, I talk about the fact that the legislation that created Obamacare just really didn't serve the people. It was always going to be a cost increase. It was always the hockey stick core. The cost of this legislation was going to be prohibitive to most Americans. But that was never uh, allowed to become the, the discussion in the landscape by, because the liberal media didn't allow it. Therefore, they obfuscated it, started talking about things such as pre-existing conditions, which really is a boondoggle. 
you could have handled pre-existing conditions in a far different manner than having to push all Americans into the same sort of uh, model, into the ACA. But the liberal media never allowed that discussion to take place. And so when we had escalating premiums, the liberal media, we would think that they should be held accountable for that. Never happened. And that's what I talk about in false narratives. You have this, you know, imbalance in the, in the power structure in the media landscape. And because you have that, you get bad pieces of legislation like this that eventually have to go to the courts. And so Democrats are screaming that, you know, you're creating an inequality in the courts now because you're, you've got, you're going to have five, five or six justices that are uh, conservative in nature and three that are liberal. So it's an imbalance. Don't go to the courts. Create legislation that does not require going to the courts, that there is no ambiguity. And this gets us to this, this other aspect of the discussion by Democrats, and that is this text versus intent. When you start looking at text versus intent, and Miss Coney Barrett is more aligned with uh, Anthony Scalia as far as being a text-driven, not an intent-driven uh, uh, justice. And so when we go back to why is this important, again, it gets back to the ACA. And it gets back to a particular case that was uh, resolved in the court. It's called King versus Burwell. And, folks, my editor's husband rails on this judgment by Justice Roberts. I mean, he just gets incensed over this thing. You don't want to bring this up to him because he'll just, he'll just rail. And he's not wrong. You know, Chief Justice Roberts couldn't have presented a weaker argument to support the ACA. And it, we're talking about uh, the case was all about subsidies incentives, federal versus state exchanges. So brief re refresher on that is that Congress, the Democrats, in created, created the legislation, they created incentives such that they wanted the states to create exchanges where the individuals could then go on to, to purchase their insurance. That if the individual purchased their insurance from the state exchanges, they would be allocated a subsidy. They'd be uh, rewarded with this subsidies. And so Congress, Democrats, this is, what, this is not a conservative or Republican piece of legislation. Democrats said, you know, we'll incentivize the states to go ahead and create these exchanges. And we'll do it because, by this fact of offering subsidies to any individual who uses their exchange. Well, the states go, you know, that's all fine and good, but the expense of creating the exchange makes no sense. So we're going to opt out of that aspect. And Democrats were caught flat-footed. So what you have is most insurance policies were purchased over the federal exchange. Well, President Obama didn't like that. He wanted to hand out the subsidies because he wanted to make the Affordable Care Act something that people would embrace. And so what did he do? He went to the IRS and said, dole out the subsidies regardless of whether or not the individual purchased their insurance through the state exchange or the federal exchange? Well, I get back to the, what the incentive was. What Congress intended there was to incentivize the states to create exchanges, make this a state-driven uh, issue, not a federal-driven uh, health care mandate. And it blew up in their face because the expenses, the states understood the expenses. It didn't make any sense to, to create their own exchanges, just had the federal government do that. Well, then that blows up this whole subsidy aspect of things. Well, President, didn't, President Obama didn't like that. 
So he changed law. He crafted law through executive order by ordering the IRS to pay out the subsidies regardless of where you got your insurance policy from. And then the case, King versus Burwell, reached the Supreme Court. And again, what the Democrats are talking about in these hearings, text versus intent. Amy Conan Barrett is more aligned with text. If it's written in text, in the legislation, that is the law of the land. That's how you interpret a law. And you know what? That is the only objective way to interpret the law. Chief Justice Roberts, what did he do? He went to intent. Well, Congress would never have intended to harm individuals by denying them subsidies dependent upon where they got their exchanges. And he was wrong. He was dead nuts wrong. Congress's intent was to create an incentive for states to create exchanges. And they did that through offering subsidies. Well, Chief Justice Roberts got this completely wrong. And that is the whole crux of what the Democrats are challenging Coney Barrett on, because she disagreed with Chief Justice Roberts. She said that the text should have driven the decision. And she's right. The text should supersede intent. If you cannot get a clear understanding of the law through the text, then by all means, use other other avenues to understand what was what the statute was intended to do. And that means you go into intent. But even here, Chief Justice Roberts got it wrong. And I don't understand why he went down that path, but he did. And so I, I see where conservatives are incensed with his vote record on the Supreme Court. In the case of the ACA, the King versus Burwell, the incentives, the subsidies should have been denied to anyone who used the federal exchange. Well, that throws a real monkey wrench into President Obama's aspirations of having everybody accept the ACA as the law of the land. And it really has not aided the ACA. The ACA is going to continue to be challenged because of just such notions that you don't follow the law. And I think the Democrats on the committee are trying to figure out whether or not Amy Coney Barrett is aligned with the judgment of Chief Justice Roberts in this regard or with the other conservative justice on the Supreme Court. And she is aligned with the other justices. She is not aligned with Chief Justice Roberts, nor were the other four conservative justices on the, on the Supreme Court. They all thought that uh, John Roberts was out to lunch and he was forcing something in the language that didn't exist. And so this is this whole text versus intent. So when you start to understand how to read what the Democrats are talking about, when you're looking at uh, severability, it's likely that any uh, case brought against the ACA will not survive severability. It means that a statute, a portion of the statute, if it is overturned or deemed unlawful, then the entire ACA falls to the wayside. Text versus intent goes to should you read something literally or should you try to guess what the writers of that legislation intended. And Ms. Barrett is aligned with, read the text. If the text is confusing, then you go to other means, but read the text as your first interpretation of the law and how you're going to adjudicate. And Chief Justice Roberts did not do that with the uh, King versus Burwell case. And the third thing that they're, they're hammering forth is discrimination. And I think what this comes down to, not sure, but I think this, where this comes down to is that there was a ruling by the court when, Chief, uh, when Justice Kennedy was still on the court, a Reagan appointee 
He wrote the majority ruling, siding with liberals on the court, about same-sex marriage. He made same-sex marriage the law of the land. Well, the problem with this is that this was not a federal case. In fact, the federal government really has limited oversight in marriage. It's a states-driven issue. But Mr. Kennedy, who's now retired and was replaced by uh, Robert, I mean by Kavanaugh, created law from the bench. He basically said, okay, the law of the land is now same-sex marriage. That's it. But as I said, this was a Kate's, uh, a state-driven case where the plaintiff argued the state had violated their rights to be treated equally. In effect, it was a discrimination case. And I think that as a discrimination case, the judgment would have been that you cannot discriminate. And therefore, marriage, same-sex marriage in the state should be legal based on discrimination or discrimination laws. And so what Mr. Kennedy did, he took a state case, made it a federal case, even though the federal government was not a participant in this case. And the federal government really has very limited uh, input on marriage. It does create legislation where you get some beneficial treatment tax-wise, but that's a tax issue, not a marriage issue. Marriage is driven by the states. The states dictate, you know, what you have to do to fulfill the commitment to be married. What, you know, constitute a mar- constitutes a marriage. This is all states-driven stuff. Mr. Kennedy took it out of that realm. That was making law. And so when we get back to this discrimination side of things that uh, the Democrats are trying to get at with the this hearing, this confirmation hearing, it comes down to something like this. Should same-sex marriage be the law of the land? No, it should not be. And I don't mean that this is a value issue. It's a process issue. The Supreme Court should never have been able to create the law, which they ultimately created. They created the law, not Congress. And this gets back to a lot of the problems with the Supreme Court and Congress. Congress abdicates its responsibility for crafting legislation. In the case of same-sex marriage, Congress could have created the legislation. As it turns out, Mr. Kennedy dictated to Congress what the law is going to be. That is an unlawful act. But it's up to Congress to take it upon itself to create legislation that would satisfy any anti-discrimination laws. Congress has decided not to do it. And the same thing with Roe v. Wade. We talk about Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court crafted legislation in this regard, too, crafted law. Congress can take this up by themselves. They don't need to have the Supreme Court interject on this. They don't need the Supreme Court to create the law. Congress should be creating the law. But politicians don't want to take the heat. So they pawn it off on the Supreme Court. Then they get angry with any adjudication made by the Supreme Court. That's just putting the cart before the horse. Congress should own up to its own responsibilities, and its responsibilities is our regard to crafting the legislation that ultimately becomes the law of the land, and they've decided not to do that. In the ACA, bad law. I mean, just it's a crappy piece of legislation. That's on Congress, not on the Supreme Court. Roe v. Wade, that's on Congress, not on the Supreme Court. It's on Congress about same-sex marriage. And we have to understand that at the end of the day, what has taken place is that Congress 
simply has turned its back on doing its job. I mean, if I'm a nominee for the Supreme Court, that's what I'd be telling any of these senators. I would be saying, you know, guess what, guys? Craft good legislation, you won't hear from me. Craft good legislation, it'll never come up to the Supreme Court. I'll never have to adjudicate on it. Craft good legislation that is not politically motivated. It won't come up to me. Do your job. Congress doesn't want to do its job, wants to blame others. Because others have to then intervene and do the work of Congress. As a side note, I haven't heard any talk about Justice Breyer's retirement. Justice Breyer's 82 years old. Uh, Justice Kennedy retired when he was 82. That, as I said, that his seat was taken over by Kavanaugh. Where is Justice Breyer? He's 82. I don't think he's going to hold on to the, his seat for you know for for the foreseeable uh, future. I think he's going to be out in the next year or two. And I hear no dialogue about that. That, that is really interesting that we're not hearing Justice Breyer's name come up. Uh, and especially if Democrats want to make this case of court packing, you know, I would be pointing to George, uh, Justice Breyer. Having said that, if Joe Biden wins, he's going to be able to be the one who appoints uh, Justice Breyer's replacement. I don't, don't know where that's going to go. We'll talk about the election a little bit later in the program. Packing the Supreme Court. So now we're, we're still talking about the Supreme Court. Now we're talking about a different issue, packing the court. I don't know who came up with this. I don't know who came up with the notion of packing the court. Really don't. I don't know if it was a conservative-driven uh, initiative. I don't know if it was a Democratic-driven initiative. I will tell you is that Joe Biden couldn't have played this any worse. I mean, he has kind of played this out to the point where now he's between a rock and a hard place because the hard left in his own party now wants court packing. He should have immediately said, you know, that's not an issue. You know, there's nine justices. That's what we have. Nine justices. That's what he should have said. He should have made it a non-issue, but now he's made it a issue that can gain traction for President Trump. That's just stupid. But again, we're looking at Joe Biden. He's never been gifted. Not uh, linguistically, not gifted with ideas. He stumbles all over himself. And I said uh, last week's program, or week before, when Donald Trump was doing his uh, debate with him, he didn't give Joe Biden enough air to hang himself. And that's what you have to do. You have to allow Joe Biden to stumble all over himself. Now, will the liberal media uh, capitalize on it? No, probably not. They would if this was a Democratic primary. Understand the difference. If Joe was going up against other Democrats, Joe would not be protected. But guess what? Joe's not going up against another Democrat. He's going up against the Republican candidate. And what does that mean? That means that he's going to gain protection. But he's still the same flawed candidate. He's still the same bad candidate, the one who doesn't have the facility with the language, doesn't have the idea, doesn't have the facility with being facile with things. And he's trying to play gamesmanship with packing the court. I think that this is a bad maneuver by him in his, in his campaign. I think that he's opening the door to Donald Trump, and that's just foolish. But that's just my two cents on things. Uh, and as I said, he's left the door open that it's festered to the point where his hard left is now going to force him on this packing the court notion. Uh, I just don't see that it will ever go forward like that, but it's become an issue because Joe has allowed it to become an issue. Okay, we got President Trump. He's tested negative two times in a row now. So now he's recovered. Uh, we talked about this last week. Uh, by contracting the coronavirus, President Trump uh, may have done the best thing for his re-election hopes. He's demonstrated to the country COVID-19 isn't the death sentence that liberal media would have us believe. He's effectively demystified the coronavirus simply by contracting and recovering from the virus. 
And this opens up a whole opportunity for him to talk very differently to the public about COVID-19. This is something his opponent can't do. Joe Biden can't talk about COVID-19 in a real-world way, only in the abstract. And so will there will any fruition come from this? Don't know, but I think it is an opportunity for, for President Trump. Leading from the front lines or hunkering down in a bunker miles from the action. I talked about this last week, and it, it's leadership. The liberal media wants to hammer uh, Donald Trump for his lack of leadership because he contracted the virus, that he then allowed others around him to contract the virus. And yet there's no deaths associated with this. Why is this the lack of leadership? This is leading from the front. This is Patton versus Montgomery in the parlance of war generals. You know, would you rather have a George Patton lead your troops as along with all of his negatives? He, George Patton was not a perfect individual. He had a lot of his own negatives. But in the case of war, would you rather have a George Patton lead your troops or a Montgomery, whether it's a Civil War general or a World War II British general? These generals were very passive, very almost frightened of their own shadows. They never pushed the, the, their advantage. And so you look at it and say, what kind of leadership do you want? And if you're making a contrast, it's Trump versus Biden. It's Patton versus Montgomery. In that regard, you need true leadership. You cannot live in fear. You live in fear, you are going to be the victim of fear. And you can't do that. And as we said, you've got the Eli Lilly has is, is just postponed its vaccine, vaccine, vaccine trials. Why? Because they had some complications. Well, if you're leading from the rear, you're relying on Eli, Willie, uh, Eli Lilly to come up with a vaccine or another company to come up with a vaccine and there be no hiccups. No, it doesn't work that way. They're always going to be uh, potholes in the road. And so you lead from the front by saying, listen, we don't need to leave, live, live in fear in this. We need to take this seriously, yes, but we have to lead our lives in a manner in which we are not at the mercy of fear. And I think that by contracting the virus, Donald Trump has led from the front. And a lot of other things he's led from, but he's not going to get credit for. This, the liberal media really will have a hard time denying him credit. And he can go to rallies now, doesn't need a mask. He can interact with whomever he wants to doesn't need to wear a mask, doesn't need to social distance. And so this becomes a benefit for him. Joe Biden is still going to have to do the social distance, do the mask, do the face coverings. He's not going to be allowed to have full access to any of his, any of his uh, supporters. So again, like I said, Joe Biden is going to continue with his strategy of uh, all the time coronavirus. He's going to, you know, basically promote the death toll. He's going to, you know, chant it up, and, and that's kind of despicable in a certain way. Uh, but there's a weak link to that strategy as well, and I've talked about this on this program. Talk about this in my coronavirus suite on danbutterfield.com. Um, isolation policies kill. You want to hashtag it, hashtag that. Isolation policies kill. If your only policy is isolation, you are not eliminating the virus. If you're not eliminating the virus, those who are vulnerable to this at every day, statistically, their risk of contracting the virus and dying because of it goes up. It, this is not uh, conjecture. It's not me opining. This, this is statistics. The longer the pathogens in the general populace and you haven't eliminated it, those who are vulnerable to it are at greater risk every day. 
Hashtag isolation policy kills. That's the reality of things. And so when you're looking at these higher death tolls, the higher death tolls are because of isolation. They are because of social distancing and face coverings. They are because we're not allowing for social gatherings. We're not allowing for individuals to contract and recover as President Trump has done. Back in the 50s, I believe, maybe 60s, there were things called chickenpox parties where parents would have their children have a, you know, associate with other kids who had chickenpox. Why? Because chickenpox as a infant disease or child disease was not deadly. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it wasn't deadly. As an, adult, as an adult, it was far more serious. So you had your children contract chickenpox. So you introduced them to other kids that had chickenpox. You created herd immunity. All right? We're not allowing that to take place. And it's not President Trump not allowing that to take place. It's Democrats. It's the liberal media. They don't allow the notion of herd immunity being a viable outcome. And we've talked on this program at nauseam. Your only solution, if you're trying to protect the vulnerable population in America, your only solution is to isolate that population as temporarily as possible. You want that to be a short-term condition, while at the same time you uh, eliminate the virus. That's the only solution you have. Well, that means you have to create herd immunity the natural way. You have to create the way Donald Trump has done. And if you've done that, guess what? You don't need to be talking about anything else. You don't need to be talking about face coverings or social distancing. You don't need to be talking about isolationist policies. You don't need to be talking about closing the economy. You don't need to be having this issue of limited social gatherings. You can open up the entire society. Why? Because your goal is to create herd immunity. And it's probably on the order of you know, 20%. The 60 80%, that's ridiculous. It, it just, statistically, it doesn't make any sense. But we're not allowing that to take place. So what ends up happening is you prolong the agony, and those who are vulnerable, well, statistically every day, their risk of contracting the virus and having a bad outcome goes up. So isolation, isolationist policies kill. Hashtag that. Because if that's your only policy, you're not trying to eliminate the virus, these vulnerable people are going to remain vulnerable. And again, you look at a uh, case in point with Fauci. Administrator Anthony, Administrator Anthony Fauci, he's predicted 400,000 deaths. Yeah, because we're not, appro- we're not pursuing herd immunity. And he has poo-pooed herd immunity. He's been saying you, you can't uh, get herd immunity. He's wrong. Not only is he wrong, and it's, it's come somewhat immaterial that he's wrong. What's material is you've got no other choice. If you've got no other option, then you've got to pursue, pursue herd immunity, your only option. And that is herd immunity. But you have to understand something about Administrator Fauci. I think it's been reported since his internship, he's never been a practicing physician. So he's giving out advice, and he's never been a practicing physician. He's been an administrator for nearly 50 years. So for five decades, that's what he's been. And his experience in his position as an administrator has been something like SARS, avian flu and Ebola, where isolation was the right solution, was the right course of action to pursue. What was not the right course of action is when you look at the coronavirus, COVID-19. The right course of action was isolate the vulnerable population, so mitigate the death toll, while at the same time creating herd immunity. But again, as I said, 
He's not into problem solving. He's an administrator. He's not a diagnostician. He's simply not a practicing physician, yet he's giving advice as if that's good for society. It's not good for society. The problem would dictate isolate the vulnerable population as temporarily as possible, while at the same time rapidly trying to incur herd immunity. And that means that then you start talking about flattening the curve. You don't care. It becomes immaterial. Why? Because you have to do one thing. Well, that means if you have to create herd immunity through infections, you, you run the risk of overwhelming your healthcare system. Okay, so be it. The positives, the benefits of rapidly trying to acquire herd immunity outweigh the possibility of overwhelming your healthcare system. It's just, it's a, it's a trade-off. And so this is a trade-off that we should be talking about, but that's not a trade-off we get to talk about. You look at the state of New Mexico. The Oompa Loompa is following the same isolationist policies. She's saying, you know, it's your fault that you're contracting a highly contagious uh, pathogen. She's nuts. The reality is you are never going to stop this through isolation. It's not happening here in this country. It's not happening in Europe. It's not happening across the world. You cannot stop this virus through isolation. And so you have to create herd immunity by hook or crook. That's what you have to do. But she's saying, no, you've been bad participants in this. You, the citizens of New Mexico, are at fault for this. And therefore, I'm going to close down this economy even harder than I did before. They're like, why? The answer is isolation policy kills. Hashtag that out to your friends and family. Shock the crap out of them. Because that will shock them. They go, what do you mean? Isolation policy, that's the law of the land. That's how we're going to defeat this virus. You're not eliminating the virus. Isolationist policies don't eliminate the virus. Therefore, isolationist policies kill. The death toll will continue to mount because we're not pursuing the right course of action. Because we not had the liberal press, local TV, and leadership that has presented this case to us. And I don't blame Donald Trump for this. Because at the end of the day, there is no oxygen for that kind of uh, argument. Liberal press doesn't allow that to take place. And therefore, what we have is this isolationist mentality. And we're being told that that will work. And it just won't work. It can't work. Because it doesn't do anything to eliminate the virus. Therefore, this virus will be around for much longer than it needed to be. If we had pursued the herd immunity from the beginning, our death toll would probably be half of what it is today. That is the reality of isolationist policies. As I said, they kill. Joe Biden is pursuing an isolationist policy. He would have pursued it. That's his leadership. If you look at Donald Trump, his leadership is say, well, you know, let's not live in fear. I wish that he would make the argument I'm making here. I, I understand why he's limited in that regard because the liberal media won't accept it. I think that if he had done it from the beginning, that we'd be in a much better place. I think that if this had been the, the argument in the land, then it becomes an issue of talking to you, the general public, about the risk. And we have to be very uh, open about the risk. There is a risk that is associated with contracting this virus. But for the general populace, it's minimal. And I know that you would want to protect other Americans. So you'd be willing to take the risk. And that is the big thing with, with what we've not been allowed to do. We've not been allowed, the president has been not allowed to talk to you about the risk and how this will ultimately benefit the country, benefit the vulnerable, lower the death toll. 
that is what we should be talking about. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, isolationist policies. Nonsensical. I mean, I like the Supreme Court uh, argument because it's just, it's just a boondoggle. It's something to talk about. It's worthless. Well, until next time, remember what you know. Don't get caught up in hysteria. Tune into this program every Saturday. No agenda, no spin. Think for yourself. You can't trust the media to do that for you. Make a difference. Share with friends, coworkers, and family. Start your own movement with the hashtag like, you know, isolationist policies kill. If you like what you heard on the program today, drop me a line at OR by DB at gmail.com. That's O-R-B-Y-D-B at gmail.com. Or let Eddie know through an email or text. Mark Twain said it best with, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. Folks, you've been tuned into the evil machinations from the irreverent mind of Dan Butterfield on Occam's Razor with Dan Butterfield, presented by the Kiva, the home of high IQ radio, where content is king. We appreciate you taking a part of your day to be with us. See, we'll see you next week. Check out my website, danbutterfield.com. See you for now. Bye.